Well, good morning. Are you glad to be here this morning? Okay, only about this half the room. What about this half the room? You glad to be here this morning? Okay, great. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes uh, when we get to that place, especially in the worship time where we sing and that, I mean, is there part of you sometimes that just goes, yes. Talk about the amazing grace of God. Yes. We talk about the holiness of God. Yes. We talk about that he is a good, good father, yet when I am a rebellious, rebellious son, there's a part of me that goes, yes. Amen to that. And I hope some of you, as we sing those songs, that it's not just the things that roll off your tongue, but it's really that deep part of your heart that goes, yes, I believe that. Well, we're glad you're here this morning. And today we're going to begin a whole new series, and it's called When You Have Something More. And I know what some of you are thinking, well, Doug, we just did six weeks talking about for something more. This seems like a continuation. And I would say that's because you're brilliant, because that's exactly what this is. Because for six weeks, here's what we did. We talked about a desire for something more. That what we, what we want to desire more than anything, if we don't know Christ, is to experience eternal life. And if we do know Christ, to experience the abundant life. And so the whole first six weeks in August was all about this. It was all about us having a deep desire and a motivation for something more. But we're not just going to stop there. We're going we're gonna to begin to continue that journey. And it's not just going to be about desire now. It's going to be about actually how do we live our lives It's not just about desiring for something more. It's about how do we live as if we have something more. And so the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at this one very crucial question, and it's this. What does my life, what does our life look like when we truly have something more? Now, let me tell you why this is so important. Here's the tension for us. You ready? Because I believe there's a lost world that's watching us. Do you believe that? Now, some of you, I know what you're thinking, Doug, my life's so insignificant, my job is so insignificant, my, the relationships I'm in are so insignificant, nobody's watching me. You're wrong, they are. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I just want you to know there's a lost world watching you. They're watching to see if you live the life you claim to possess. Another reason I think this is such an important question for us to ask is because there's a lost world waiting for our responses. How do you deal with tragedy? How do you deal with the loss of a job? How do you deal with cancer when it hits your body? How do you deal with the agony of a divorce? How do you deal with the agony of a a rebellious child? I mean, how do you deal with that stuff? And a lost world is waiting to see how we respond. And listen to this. This is the most important. The reason this question is such a big one to ask is this. Because I think a lost world is wanting some authentic people. I believe that. You know something I find very interesting when I read the Gospels? Lost people loved hanging around Jesus. Didn't they? Lost people loved hanging around Jesus. That's why when you read so often the Gospels, the crowd continued to follow him. That whole crowd didn't believe him. But lost people loved hanging around Jesus. Why? Well, because he was going to do miracles, maybe. But because when he spoke, I mean, his teachings were so amazing, maybe. I believe it's because Jesus was legit. Jesus was authentic. When Jesus said it, they knew from the dairy fibers of his being that he meant it. And I'm telling you, the reason we have to ask this question, what does our lives look like when we have something more, is because there's a lost world that's watching, waiting, and wanting us 
to be authentic. Listen, you have lost friends, lost neighbors, and lost coworkers who are watching you, who are waiting for your responses. And listen, they desperately want you to be legitimate. They desperately want you to be following Christ no matter what. You know why? Because you provide them hope. Right? So we're going to be asking that question. Now, as we look today at the, at the passage we're going to get into, we're going to talk about a church. And this church, I'm just telling you, this church, if you were to look at all the churches the Apostle Paul wrote to, that if they said, hey, Doug, which was the church that truly had something more? Which church was truly living out this abundant life that they said that they claimed to have? It would be the church of Thessalonica. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, don't turn there, but in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul formed and started this church in Thessalonica. It was a very, very young church. But the one thing that Paul does in this first letter to Thessalonians is he compliments them and he talks well of them and he says, we've been praying for you and we're celebrating you, remembering you. Why? Because this church was truly living out something more. Even when they faced affliction, even when they faced trials, even when they faced tribulations, no matter what came their way, this church was truly living for the Lord. Truly living for the Lord. And so we're going to look at this church is our model. For us as a church, what does it mean? What does it look like when we have something more? But more importantly, as a follower of Jesus, what does it look like when we, when you, when I have something more? So if you're with me, say amen this morning. All right, First Thessalonians, here we go. Turn your Bibles, First Thessalonians chapter 1, because today what we're going to talk about is going to be so intense this morning. There's going to be some things that we're going to find in the Scripture. It's going to cause us to want to grimace and cause us to want to go, well, wait, Doug, and, and we want to push back. But listen, I believe God has a word for all of us today through his word. And so First Thessalonians chapter 1, if you would all stand with me as we read in honor of God's word. Chapter 1, verse 1 says this. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering you before our God and Father for your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, that loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in what? Power. Say that loud, what? Power. power and the Holy Spirit and with full what? Okay, you said power really loud, but conviction, like, well, nobody wants that, all right? So say it again. And with what? Conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you and for your sake, and you became imitators of us, of the Lord, for you have received the word and much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for we now only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but faith in God has gone forth everywhere." So that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serving the living and true God, and to who waits for his Son from heaven, whom raised from the dead Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Let's pray together. God, I love you. I thank you for this passage. I know there's so much meat here. I know there's a lot to unpack. But God, would your Holy Spirit help us do that? Would your words come out of my mouth, and may you convict our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we look at this passage, and we ask the question, what does our life look like if we truly have something 
more. I believe when we look at this passage, there's three evidences that we have something more. When you look at the words of Paul, and when you look at the letter of Paul, and you look at what Paul talks about, there are three evidences that you can know and that I can know that we truly have something more. The first evidence he gives us is this, is that this church of Thessalonica had a genuine life change. They had a genuine life change. And there's two things that Paul points to to show us the genuineness of their life change. The first one's found in verse 4 through 6. Listen to this. It says this. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and full of conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and during a time of much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing he points to is this, listen, you guys have had a genuine life change, and here's how I know that. There has been a real change of direction in your life. You might want to write that down. The way we know we have genuine life change is if there's a real change in our direction. Notice what he said there, that you have received the word. In other words, you have received the gospel. See, this was a group of people that were hanging out in Thessalonica, and the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, made it to Thessalonica. And this church in Thessalonica, this Thessalonian church, they had received that word. They had said yes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, listen, as I thank God for you and I pray for you, one of the things that jumps out at me, Paul says, is you've had a real genuine life change. You've had a change in your direction. You have received the gospel of Christ. Now, what's he talking about? They've had a salvation experience. Let me just say this to you. To say that we have received the gospel is to acknowledge that we are all sinners. Amen? You're not so sure about that, are you? We probably could look in your home about 7.30 this morning on your way to church and find out we are all sinners. In fact, the Bible says, for all have what? All have sinned. Who's all? That includes Cameron, includes me, includes all. It is everybody has sinned. And to say that we've received the gospel, first of all, is to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. It also means to acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that Jesus is the only son of God, and he's the only way to eternal life. He's it. There is no other way. You're, it's not about being a good person. It's not about how much good you can do. It's about Jesus and Jesus alone. And that he loved us so much, what did he do for us? He went and he died on a cross. And three days later, what did he do? He rose from the dead. See, to say that you have received the gospel, the good news of Christ, is going to acknowledge that I am a sinner, that I have rebelled, that things that I say and things that I think and things that I do have been rebellion toward God, but it's also to acknowledge the truth of Jesus, that he came, he was perfect, he was sinless, he died on the cross, and three days later he rose from the grave. But let me tell you also what it means to receive the gospel. See, what I just told you is great information. But to truly receive the good news of Christ like this church had required two more things, repentance and surrender. See, somewhere along the line, this church had heard the good news of Christ, and they were walking away from God, and they were walking down a path to eternal separation. They heard the good news of Jesus, and they turned. The word repent literally means to do a 180, to be walking this direction, and now I'm going to walk this direction. And this church had experienced that. They had turned from their sin, and they had surrendered their lives 
to Christ. So when Paul says, listen, I thank God for you and I pray for you because your life has had a change of direction. You have received the gospel. You know that you're a sinner. You've trusted Jesus and you've turned your life around and are following him. Now here's why I'm laboring this. Because this church, this wasn't just a shift in mindsets. This was a life change. That when they received the gospel, everything changed. Can I tell you one of the struggles that I have is that when people say that they are a follower of Jesus, but nothing changes in their life, is that a problem? You're not sure about that. Is that a problem? One of my favorite preachers, he was actually spoke at the Oviedo campus last Sunday night. His name is Johnny Hunt. The first time I ever heard him preach was at a massive youth conference with 6,000 teenagers, and he said this to all the teenagers and to the adults that were there. He said, listen, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and there's never been a change in your life, I wouldn't give you half a hallelujah for your salvation. And I go, what? Drop the mic. And he walked on the I mean, he didn't drop the mic. But I'm like, that's, he's right. See, if Jesus hasn't changed me, there's no evidence that I'm a follower of Christ. Now, some of you are like me, say, well, Doug, I became a follower when I was young. I was nine years old. About the only thing I did terrible, sinful, before nine years old, I probably told my sister I hated her a couple of times, right? I may have called her fat at some point. I don't know, but I mean, I'm sure there's things I did. Had I gone out and, 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 and like got knocked down drunk? No. Had I gone out and experienced with, you know, crack cocaine? Absolutely not. Had I gone out and fornicated before I got, absolutely not. But I was still a broken sinner. And Jesus changed me. And I'm able to look at the decisions I made from age 9 to age 45 and go, the decisions I make today are different because Jesus entered into my heart, into my life, and I surrendered my life to him. And I just want you to think about this. Have you had that life change? See, Paul compliments this church by saying there has been a change of direction in your life. Now, he talks about why that change came about. Look what he says here in verse 4 or verse 5. He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Do you know why the gospel is so powerful or why the gospel is so amazing? It's because the power of the gospel. Now, let me tell you what the power of the gospel is. It is the grace of God. What makes the good news of Jesus such good news is the grace of the news, right? The reason the good news is so amazing, the reason we don't call it bad news, but it's good news, is because it's loaded with grace and mercy. See, listen to this. The Bible teaches me that I'm wretched, I'm pitiful, I'm depraved, and I deserve death, hell, and the grave. That's what I deserve, and you do too. But instead of God condemning us and committing us to wrath, if we put Jesus and we accept Christ and we surrender our lives to him, he moves us from condemnation to acceptance as his child. And I'm just telling you, the, one of the reasons the good news is so powerful is because the grace of the good news. That I love you no matter what. Now, you know, have you ever talked to people that say this? Well, Doug, there's no way God could love me because you just don't know what I've done. You ever talk to somebody like that? Or Doug, you, you, you don't, I, there's no way God can forgive me for all the things I've said. God, there was, Doug, there was a time in my life when, when I, I just denied God. I mean, I was, like, I was like, there is no God. I was that agnostic slash atheist. I mean, that was my life, Doug. And you have no idea. There's no way God's going to take someone who was all about, you know, degrading the name of God, and then somehow he's going to show me grace. There's no way. And here's the message of the gospel. Your sins. And my sins are not bigger than God's grace. God's grace covers not just a multitude of sins, 
It covers all sins. Right? Powerful. That's what he says. And then he says it's full of conviction. Listen to me, and I want you to hear one of your pastor's hearts this morning. It's this. is that when I read this book, God, God, through what I read, continues to convict me of the sin that's in my life. See, the gospel of Jesus, while on one hand reminds me of the grace of God, it also reminds me of my human condition. That I'm wretched. That when I listen, you have you ever heard people say, follow your gut? Anybody ever heard that? If you've said it, don't raise your hand. If you've heard somebody say it, follow your gut. Anybody, anybody, nobody's heard that? Or follow your heart. How about that one? You've heard that one said, right? You're the only one. Anybody else heard follow your heart before? Okay, listen, that is a lie that's going to split hell wide open. That's a lie from the devil. You don't follow your heart. The Bible says the heart is wicked above all else. That it's it's you don't trust it. And see, when I read scripture, here's what I'm reminded of. The scripture continues to convict me of my sin because when I'm left to my own opinions, my own reasoning, and my own rationale, I will always go the wrong way, always. That's why I need the power of the Holy Spirit in my life to direct me, to guide me, to instruct me. Amen? We all need that. And so when he thinks about this church, he says, man, you guys have had a genuine life change. And it's evident that there has been a clear change of direction in your life. You were once walking this way, and you received the gospel, surrendered your life to Christ, and now you're walking this way. But he points to another thing about their genuine life change found in verse 9. Skip down to verse 9 with me. And here's what it says. He says this in verse 9. For they themselves report concerning to us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turn to who? From what? And to serve the living and true God. Listen, he says, listen, not only have you had a change of direction, you've had a change of affection. And I'm not trying to rhyme on purpose, that's just not me. But I mean, that's what it is. He's like, listen, you've had a change of direction in your life, and that change of direction, now there's a change of affection. Because once, what was the affection of the heart? Idolatry. Once their hearts were endeared to different idols. We don't know what idols they were, but there was a time when their hearts were endeared by idolatry. And he says, listen, because there's been a change in direction in your heart, now there's a change in the affection of your heart. Did you hear that? Now that my direction has changed, now my affection should change. Those are signs of genuine life change. A change of direction and a change of affection. So I have a question before we go on. Have you experienced a genuine life change? Has there been a moment in your life when you had a change in your life spiritually? Because here's the conversation I have sometimes with people. Well, when was the time you accepted Christ as your Savior? When was that moment, that personal moment when you truly said yes to Jesus? And I hear this all the time. Well, you know what? I grew up in church. (laughs) Wrong answer. Well, my mom and dad, they loved Jesus and they read the Bible and we prayed all the time. Eh, wrong answer. But can you imagine how many times that's what I hear? It's almost like people have this idea that because my, my grandmother was a Christian or my grandfather was a Christian or my parents were Christian, that somehow it just kind of rubbed off on me. When mom washed the laundry all together, somehow I got Jesus in my clothes and when I put it on, I mean, all of a sudden I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus now. No. There has to be a genuine life change in the heart of every human being. There is no covenant life change. There is nothing because Randy Walker is a believer, and if I'm his son, now I'm a believer. That doesn't work that way. Because one day I'm going to stand before holy God, and I'm going to give an account of my life, not your life, of what God has done with me. And I'm going to answer the question, what did I do with Jesus? 
And I'm just asking you this morning, have you had a change of direction? Have you had a personal decision to say, I know that I'm a sinner, I know Jesus died for me, and I'm going to trust him and surrender my life to him? Have you done that? And has that direction change impacted your change of affection? Now, this is where I'm probably going to offend all of us, including myself today, all right? Many of us have idols in our life. I'm not talking about you got a little Buddha statue up on your mantle at home. I don't mean that. But we have different idols. You know what idolatry is, right? Anything that takes the place of Christ, right? Anything that you worship more than you do him. And you're like, well, how do I measure that? Well, what consumes your time, your energy, and your money? Probably your idol. So for some of us, our idol is money. It has taken the place of Christ. We pursue it over everything else. For some of us, maybe it's a career and succeeding that career. We pursue that. I mean, yeah, we love Jesus, but at the end of the day, we want to make more money so we can have more. And so, I mean, that is an idol. For some of us, oh, it's even the extracurricular things of life, right? Maybe our kids in extracurricular sports, or maybe we're in extracurricular things, or maybe we like to do this and do that, and it's all, and, and somehow or another, that takes precedence over everything as it relates to our walk with Christ. And maybe you heard day and you would just say, you know what? I know I've had a change in my direction, but I have been fighting God on the change in my affection. I've been fighting God and truly giving him my heart, my attention, and the affection of my heart. See, the mark of someone who really has something more is that there has been a genuine life change. The second thing Paul says, and the second evidence is this. It's found in verse 3. It says this. Remembering you, I thank God for you, mentioning you, remembering you before our God and Father for your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that Paul admonishes them about is like, listen, you guys truly are living something more. You have something more. And I see it because there's been a genuine life change. There's been a change of direction. There's been a change of affection. And the second thing he says this is that there's also the, the evidence that you truly are living this out something more is that there is true devotion in your life. True devotion. Legitimate devotion. Now, there's a few things here that Paul picks out that's kind of the, the, the devotion that is seen in three different things. The first thing it's seen in, he says, their faith. Their faith toward who? Their faith toward God. He points out their faith. He says, listen, the one way that I know that you are truly devoted to the Lord is I see it in your faith. It's evident in your faith. Now, what is Paul saying? He said, listen, hey, your faith is not something where you just talk about trusting God, where you just say you trust God. I mean, you really trust God. Have you ever met those kind of people? They annoy you, don't they? I I mean, they shouldn't annoy us, but they do. I mean, people that say, man, I love the Lord, and I know God's got this, and the whole back of your mind, you're going, yes, he does, but if I was in your shoes, I don't know if I'd have the faith you have. Well, shame on us. So he says, listen, church, I mean, listen, this is a first century church. What does that mean? They are going through severe persecution. And this is a church, despite the persecution, despite affliction, they are truly, truly showing their faith. And notice what he says there, their work of faith. You know what that means? It means their faith toward God produced good works. Now, here's what I want you to do not tune out to me today. All right, you've got to hear this. Do works save us? No. Hallelujah, you all said that right, right? No. But if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I put my faith in him, should there be good works that overflow out of my life? Yes. James said it this way, faith without works is dead. 
Meaning if you claim to follow Christ and there's no evidence that in your life, there's no faith. And what Paul does here is he admonishes them and says, listen, you have some serious devotion to the Lord. And that devotion is found, first of all, in your faith toward God. Secondly, he talks about their love and their love toward others. Now, what he's talking about is not just a love that says, hey, I love you. If you need anything, let me know. But Lord, I pray they never call me. Not that kind of love. The kind of love that's all about actions. Are you with me on that? Are you with me on that? The kind of love that's about action. In fact, he says here that that kind of love produces a labor. He mentions the phrase, a labor of love. That Greek word labor is the word kapos, and it literally means to be strenuous, fatiguing, and sweat producing. That's the kind of love he's talking about. Can I say something graciously today? Sometimes when people have needs, they don't just need your prayers, they need your lawnmower. They don't just need your prayers. They need your weak mind and strong back to move something, right? And to labor in love is to say, guess what? Not only do I love you, but I'm going to walk a journey with you. Is it going to be fatiguing? Absolutely. Is it going to be strenuous? You better believe it. Is it going to be sweat producing? Absolutely. You know why? Because that is a labor of love. That's why women, could you agree with me? That's why, I mean, did I not just describe labor right then? Is, would, would those three things describe labor, ladies? Strenuous, fatiguing, and sweat producing. Does that describe labor? Amen? Some of you are concerned. You're like, no, I didn't at all, right? Husbands, did that describe you while your wife was having children? Yes, right? Now, can you think of any example? Listen, can you think of any example where a person so loved people that they were willing to labor in that love and to be sweat producing, to be willing to fatigue themselves and to strenuously show their affection, their love. Can you think of an example like that? Oh, oh I can. Called the cross, right? The cross of Christ. Do you think the cross was easy for Jesus? Come on, do you think it was easy for him? No. But he loved us so much, he said, I'm going to labor in my love. I'm going to labor. I'm just going to say, I love you, for God so loved the world that he gave me. No, no. I'm not just going to say, I love you. I'm going to demonstrate. That's why the Bible says that while we were still yet sinners, God showed us he loved this way, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ, what? Died. He died. He labored. His love was reflected and manifest in the labor of fatigue, of strenuous and sweat-producing death on a cross. And he tells this church, man, I see your devotion. Man, you're people of faith and you're people that love. You don't just say you love people. You show people you love them, right? And he says one more thing that he points out. He says this. He mentions their hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is their hope in? Their hope is towards the future. See, this church, this Thessalonica church, they were inspired with the fact that Jesus one day is coming again. That Jesus one day is coming again. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you read there's a sense of urgency in the Gospels that they really believe that Jesus was going to come back at any moment. Do we live like that? Do we, do we, do we live like that? Do we see our neighbors, our co-workers, and treat them that maybe don't know Christ as if Jesus was going to split heaven open and come back at any moment? Do we live like that? They did. They continually were steadfast or patient in their hope 
for the Lord's return. They kept their eye on the prize. They believed that Jesus is going to come back at any moment. So I have to be faithful. I have to love people. And I'm going to hope in the fact that Jesus is coming again. And he says here that hope produced steadfastness or endurance or patience. Now please hear me this morning. If you are following Jesus Christ, here's a promise I can make you. Life is going to knock you down. Amen? Life is tarred, it is difficult, and it has a tons of pressures to it. But we need to keep our hope in the future. Our hope in the fact that Jesus is coming again. And no matter what adversity we face or no matter what affliction we face, at the end of the day, Jesus has the final word. That he's coming in. And that hope should produce patience in our life. Not patience to just endure and survive tragedy, but patience to triumph over tragedy. That's the way they lived. They were totally devoted to the Lord. And here's the thing I want you to think about. Are we as devoted as they were? When you look at your life, and I look at my life, and we look at our lives, are we as devoted to the Lord and faith and love and hope as they were? See, here's what I believe. Many people commit to a lot of things but are devoted to very little Right? We commit to a lot of stuff, but we are truly devoted to almost nothing. So let me ask it this way. There's some of you in the room today who would say this, I love Jesus with all my heart. Amen for that. But is there works of faith in your life? Is there evidence in your life and how you're living? I mean, is your faith in the Lord and trust in the Lord, is it producing good works? I'm not, I'm not talking about good works that build you up. Jesus said this way, so let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. I'm talking about your good works that are pointing people to Jesus. I mean, is there evidence of that in your life? And if you have to say this, well, I don't know, then probably no is the answer. And I'm going to ask you to give me a vice list of, all. well, I did this for my neighbor. But I mean, there's something in us that knows, is my life producing works because of my faith in Christ. You love Jesus, but are there works of faith in my life? Is there a labor of love? Now listen to me. I heard ministers many, many years ago say this, that church life would be easy if it was not filled with people. Right? He's right. And you would say the same thing about your workplace, your neighborhood. Life wouldn't be messy without people. So we say we love Jesus, but is there labors of love that, that are overflowing from us? I'm not just talking about telling people we love them, but I mean, are we doing something to demonstrate our love for them? Are we laboring with them? Are we, are we fatiguing with them? Are we sweating with them? Are we being strenuous? Because at the end of the day, all we care about is showing them how much we love them. Is there labors of love in our life? And then we say we love Jesus, but is there an endearing hope in us? I mean, the worst thing I think in the world is believers who have a pessimistic view of the life that we're living. Do you know what I mean by pessimistic, right? You know, so how, how many of you see the glass half full? Okay, how many see it half empty? Okay, here's the difference. If I see the glass half empty, I'm probably going to be pessimistic. You know, all I see is what's not there. But if I see the glass half full, you know what I see? Potential. Right? And I'm telling you, we need to have an enduring hope. We need to keep our eye on the prize. Listen to me. Jesus could come back today. And if he came back today, would you be excited about that? 
Would you celebrate that? Would you yell for them louder, Randy, than you do FSU? Would you yell for them lighter, Doug, than you do Notre Dame Fighting Irish? I know it's a problem, but I love that. I mean, would I, would I celebrate if the, if the clouds parted and Jesus came? Would I be like jumping and celebrating and couldn't wait? Well, why am I waiting till then? I've got to keep my eye on the prize. See, evidence that we truly have something more is that we have a genuine life change we have true devotion, and there's one more thing as I wrap it up. It's this. It's found in verse 8 through 10. Look with me there. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to whom wait for the Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead who delivers us from the wrath to come. The last thing that Paul talks about is not only that they had a genuine life change, not only that they were truly devoted, but they had a missional lifestyle. That they lived their lives on mission for God. Did you notice what he said there? The word of God has sounded forth from you. Can I tell you something about this early church that was amazing? They had one message. You know what the message was? Come on, you know what the message was? Jesus. That's it. That was it. You think they had conversations about, well, you know, maybe it's the way we take communion. Maybe that's the problem, you know. Maybe it's the way we pass the, the play. No, no, you think they got into all the idiosyncrasies of the early church? Are there, no, there was one message. There was one thing that permeated the first century church, and it was one message. It was the message of Christ. And Paul says, if there's one thing I know about you, Man, you have a missional lifestyle. You are living on mission because you are proclaiming the truth of Jesus. You are making the message of Christ the most important thing you share with anybody. And then he says this, not only that, but you are serving the living God. He says, you've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In other words, your heartbeat is the same heartbeat as God. That what breaks the heart of God breaks your heart. And that you are so kingdom mindset that all you care about doing is serving. Now listen to me. Friday night, is it going to be glamorous to pick up somebody else's trash? Come on, is it glamorous? Especially like those people like me that eat those nachos and they don't eat all of it. And instead of just throwing it away, we throw it upside down and it just gets everywhere. I mean, you know I'm talking about nasty people like at the, you know. I mean, you think it's, it's glorious to do that? Come on, is that a glorious thing to do? I mean, how many of you are like, I cannot wait to pick up somebody else's trash? But is that serving? Because listen to me, if I'm willing to pick up somebody's trash, that means I'm also probably willing to go to their house and repair something that needs, which also means that I'm going to make sure that I share a message that really matters. See, this church just didn't proclaim Christ. They served God. They served other people. Because you know what? Just saying Jesus and just proclaiming the truth of Christ, well, that is awesome. People are still looking for how we live our lives, aren't we? Aren't they? People are still looking for, you can say Jesus all day long. You can pray and you can talk about Christ all day long. But is that evidence in how you love people and serve people? This church was serving. They were a missional lifestyle. And then last of all, it says this, that their lives, they lived their lives in light of the Lord's return. And I already said that. They lived with anticipation that Christ was coming in. Now listen to me. I want you to write this down in your Bibles if you have a pen. If you, if you don't mind writing your Bibles. Because sometimes you're going to hear pastors and preachers say this, that we need to be living a missional lifestyle. We need to live a life on mission. And I love that phrase, but here's how I always follow it up. What in the world do they mean? 
What does it mean to be on mission? Well, here it is, these three things. Proclaim the gospel, serve God, and live in light of his return. That's it. That's what it means to be on mission. I'm going to proclaim the truth of Jesus. I'm going to serve the Lord and serve people. And I'm going to live my life in light of the fact that he may split heaven wide open and come back before my next breath. Now, this church had something more. They did. And they were living it out. But here's my question for us today. What about us? What about us? What about you? What about me? Have we truly experienced a genuine life change? Has there been a real change of direction in our lives? Now, I want you to look right here, right, right here. There's some of you that answer that question is no. I've never truly trusted Christ as my Savior. Yeah, I grew up in church. Yeah, maybe even I walked an aisle and filled out a car, but at the end of the day, I've never surrendered my life to him. Well, today I have a request for you. In a moment, when the music starts, I'm going to ask you to meet me or some of the people we have down front or even the back of the room and say, I need to know Christ as my Savior. Today, my prayer for you, if that's your story, is that you would experience genuine life change with a change of direction. And there's some of you in the room today, here's your story. Because if here's the deal. If there's real life change, guess what? There's going to be real devotion, isn't there? If my life is truly changed, there's going to be real devotion in my life. And if there's real devotion... I should live a life on mission. Because some of you, here would be your story. Say, hey, Doug, I know I'm a follower of Christ, but I don't feel like I'm living on mission for God like I should be. Well, let me just say this to you lovingly. It's probably because you're not as devoted as you think you are. If I'm not really living life on mission, because I wrestle with that. You know, God, I, I, I want to see more people saved. I want to see more lives changed. I want to be on mission for you. Then I'm forced to evaluate, am I really living devoted to him? Because if I'm not as being missional and on mission as I ought to be, maybe it's because I'm not as devoted as I think I am. So this invitation is for three categories of people, and I want you to hear this. If you don't know Christ, first of all, would you receive him today? Would you just say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me today. I surrender my life to you. Would you do that? Would you make that decision? Second of all, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, look at me. If you're a follower of Jesus, hear me today. Maybe you say, Doug, I've had a change in my direction but I'm fighting giving God my affections. Would you just come to this altar on these rugs and just cry out to him? Say, Lord, I give you my heart. I, like the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation, have forsaken my first love, and I give you my heart today, Lord. I know you've changed my life, but I want you to take my affections back. Or maybe you're a believer today, so you know what? It's my devotions is the issue. Is I, I, I'm not as faithful as I ought to be. I don't, I don't have as much hope. I don't love people as much as I have. But today, Lord, I'm going to repent. Today, I'm going I'm to say, Lord, I, I'm making a new commitment to be devoted to you, to not just say I believe you and trust you, but to really trust you, to really love people, and to really keep my eye on the prize. And if that's you today, would you join me and let's just cry out to God? Or if you're here today and say, you know what, Doug? I know I've had a direction change in my life, and I've given the Lord my affection, and I struggle with my devotion, but at the end of the day, Doug, I know I'm not as on mission as I ought to be. I know that I'm not sharing the good news of Christ and serving people like I ought to, but today I want that to change. And if you're that believer who wrestles with any of those things, today this altar is open for you. Now, please don't do this. Please don't be that person to go, I'm good. I'm good. I got it. Here's what I promise you. You're not good. You don't have it. And God needs to wreck you. God needs to take your heart and break it.
like he does mine. And I'm just asking you, if you're a follower of Christ and you wrestle with your affection or you wrestle with your devotion or you wrestle with being on mission, would you just come and cry that out to him? Nobody needs to know your junk, but would you just cry out to your heavenly father and go, Lord, I want to see a change in my life today. Not tomorrow, today. And it begins at this altar. It begins with me surrendering myself. And you may say, Doug, I want to come forward, but I can't get on my knees. Well, come to the front row. Do something as a picture that you're making a decision to do something different in your life. So if you don't know Christ, accept him. If you do know Christ, which one of those areas do you need to repent of? And the third thing is this, the third group. There's some of you today that I just believe this, man. Life is just knocking you off your feet. And you just need people to hover you and just to pray over you. Life is a struggle. Finances are struggles. And why nobody else may know it in the room, you're hurting. And you just need somebody to pray for you. And if that's you, I'm going to ask you to find your way to somebody that's in the room that's up here that would love to pray with you. So everybody stand with me if you would. Everybody stand with me. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And I'm going to ask if Juan and Jerry and, and uh, Don and Terry and Tim and Carmen and Randy, if you guys would find your way to the corners of the room. You may say, Doug, there's no way I'm, I'm going to come down front. Well, we've got Tim and, 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 and Carmen in the back of the room. love to pray with you. But if you're here today and you just simply say this, and nobody's looking around, just between you and the Lord. Today, Doug, I know that I've never trusted Christ as my Savior. And I want there to be a change in my direction. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up and put it right back down? Nobody's going to corner you, pick you out of a crowd. I'm just going to pray for you. If that's you, just put it up and put it right back down. Amen. And if you're a believer in the room today and say, you know what, Doug, I'm struggling. I'm struggling maybe with my devotion. I'm struggling maybe with my, my, uh, uh, my being on mission. I'm struggling with the affection of my heart. Today I want it to be different. Today I want there to be a change in my life. If that's you, would you just put your hand up, put it back down? Yeah. Man. Come on. Be honest. If that's you, put it up, put it down. Yeah. Or if you're here today and you say, Doug, I am just hurting. Life is overwhelming me. And I feel like I'm suffocating. And I just need somebody to pray for me. Would you just put it up, put it right back down? I'm going to pray for you. Man. So many of us. I'm going to pray for us, and as soon as I say amen, as soon as I hit that first note, I'm going to ask you, if you don't know Christ, I'm right here. I'd love to talk to you. If you're a believer and you need to confess some things to the Lord, this altar is open for you. And if you're here and you just need some prayers, we have people that would love to pray with you. Don't let this moment slip by us. Father God, I love you. I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we're able to look at the Thessalonica church and go, this is a church that truly had something more. And God, that we would say as a church, we want to be that kind of church. But to be that kind of church, we got to first be that kind of people. we got to be people that have had genuine life change. We've got to be the kind of people that have true devotion to you. We've got to be the kind of people that are on mission, not for our own benefit, not for ourselves, but for you, to share your message of hope and life. So God, I pray for us today. I pray for the person that's never trusted you. There's never been a change of direction. I pray today that change would happen. I pray today they would take a step of faith and step out of a, out of a row and make their way to somebody in the room and say, I just need to trust Jesus and surrender my life to him. God, I pray for the believers in the room. 
We come and we act like we're all okay, but at the end of the day, we're not okay. We are struggling. We're hurting. There's burdens that weigh on us. And God, maybe it's because we're, our affections have gone toward the world instead of you. Maybe it's because we're not devoted enough. Maybe it's because we're not living on mission. I don't know what it is, but what I do know is today is the day to turn that thing around. Today's the day for us to say, enough. No more. God, I'm going to declare my affections for you. God, I'm going to give my devotion to you. And God, I'm going to live my life on mission for you. God, and I believe that can only happen when you break our hearts. I believe it can only happen when we surrender ourselves. And maybe that means coming to an altar and getting on our face and just crying out to you. And then, God, I pray for the person that's just hurting, the person that's wrestling, and they just need to be covered with prayer. God, you have a word for all of us today. And may we be faithful to respond to you obediently. For it's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen. This altar is open.